Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Changing Reels, the podcast focusing on diversity in front of and behind the camera by talking about overlooked or underappreciated movies, having a bit of discussion about them, and tossing some short films in in the meantime. As always, I am Andrew Hathaway. And I'm Courtney Small. And this podcast is featured on Modern Superior. Quite a few great folks that support us, and we in turn support them. We ask that you check out their Patreon. For about two bucks, you enjoy a whole slew of extras at the Modern Superior Network. So make sure you give that a shot. We also have a very special guest here today, Mr. Ryan McNeil. Ryan, how you doing? Greetings and salutations, gentlemen. Salutations indeed. And Ryan, since I get to be the host, since Courtney was actually the uh, the host for our last couple of guests, I get to ask you a very important question. Why did you want to be on the podcast? Uh, it, you know, the, the strange thing is that when I host my own show or when I do like guest spots on other people's show, I find that I'm doing more of the work. So when I go onto somebody else's show to just kind of sit and talk, I don't have to prep quite as much. Like I've got to do the required reading, but it's it's a lot less work. So really, anytime somebody asks me, I'm like, yeah, sure. What? I don't have to do show notes. I don't have to write up intros and do research. Yeah, I'm a, I can just turn on my mic and start yammering on. Absolutely. Where do I sign? So when Courtney asked me, that's when I jumped at the chance because uh, I certainly haven't done one of your shows yet. I like to move around. I like to get out there into the podcasting network and make my presence known, pee in every corner as it would. The Changing Reels, I guess, logo or catchphrase now could be Changing Reels, where you can shut off your mind and ramble your heart out. <laughs> That's the motto I live by. <laughs> Courtney, we know you're the uh, the smooth talker of us all. And speaking of which, give us that smooth voiced action and tell us how you're doing today. Doing well. I'm doing much better than our last episode, where I was hitting that pre-tiff wall of tiredness before the festival actually started. Now the festival's ended, I'm kind of rejuvenated and getting back into the real world, as it will. Speaking of which, Ryan, were you able to join in any of the TIFF festivities? I was indeed, actually. Uh, not uh, 36 hours ago, Courtney and I were watching a movie together. Both of us are trying to forget it, because it was not good. <laughs> but, it was pretty uh, bad. Yeah. I got out to about 12 or 13 movies. This year, I focused on films that were directed by women. It made for a great week. I saw a lot of uh, directors that I had never seen the work of before, and it, it worked out well. It's It's been now two TIFFs where I've done a little bit of a reduced schedule and tried working my day job through it, and so far, so good. We'll see how this keeps on going as we go forward from year to year, but uh, definitely a good year for film at TIFF. Well, then, before we get to our usual array of short films, which movie would you say had the greatest emotional heft to you? Be it positive, negative, disgust, excitement, whatever. I'm a visual guy. Like I studied to be a photographer, so I usually go for the visual first. There were few films that really caught my eye nearly as much as a film called The Rider, which is about South Dakota horse trainer and rodeo rider. It was directed by Chloe Zhao, and it was gorgeous. Like This thing is pulled from the very best book of Malick, but it's not like it's actually got a plot, unlike most of the last few Malick films. It really, really left an impression on me. It was one of the first movies I saw. I think it was the second one that I saw over the course of the week, and just as the week went on, it was still hanging on there in the top spot. It's going to hit theaters over the next eight months or so, so I'd really recommend people check it out. The Rider by Chloe Zhao. It's a really good movie. Excellent. The Rider by Chloe Zhao. I'll make sure to pop it on my list. Courtney, same question for you, since you're, I guess, a little more with it this week. I was going to say Call Me By Your Name, because that was like my favorite of the fest, but I feel that's already gotten a lot of praise. So I will actually promote a film called What Will People Say? A female director whose name is escaping me at the moment, but I will look it up and add it to the show notes. But a really great film set in Norway about a Pakistani family where the teenage daughter has a little slip up. Nothing out of the ordinary for most teenagers, but the parents freak out and the father kidnaps her and takes her back to Pakistan to try and reform her. It goes downhill from there, but just it packs an emotional punch like left and right. And the performances are, are fantastic. So that's one that I've been telling people they should keep an eye out for. You're telling me it goes downhill from a premise like that? That's the most shocking <laughs> thing I've heard all day. <laughs> it's a real heart warmer. Every time you think, well, maybe it might get better. No, no. Well, I'll look forward to both of those. So uh, before we get cracking, Ryan, thank you again for joining us. My pleasure, man. 
And before we get started on our feature film today, which is going to be Ryan Coogler's Creed, we like to discuss two short films picked by Courtney and myself, and then we will uh, see how they tie in or see how they don't tie in. Courtney, I actually tried to uh, practice the pronunciation of your short, Quange Remplacé Camille, otherwise known as When I Replaced Camille. Why don't you tell us a bit about it? The reason I picked this one is because I felt thematically it fit very nicely with Creed. Uh, it's an animated short film about this woman, Lori, who is, I guess, the new addition to this swim team. She's replacing Camille, who has passed away. And she's kind of stressed about trying to live up to Camille's standards to the point where she's almost so obsessed over that she's haunted by the spirit of Camille as she's trying to prepare for this big competition and i i just thought the idea of having to live up to the image of someone else and someone else's standard fit nicely with a lot of the stuff we'll be discussing in creed and i just thought it was a really interesting film and especially the way how it shows how laurie is, is, is haunted the imagery of and almost like camille trying to stop her from achieving and replacing her so that was the main thing that kind of struck me about it and i thought it would be a nice synergy with the feature film we're talking about today the one thing that really jumps out at me, going by Courtney's point of trying to replace an athlete and how that ties into Creed, is that it really comes to light when you're talking about a death. You know, when you're trying to step into somebody's shoes and it's not because they quit or they walked away or if it's pro team sports, somebody, a player that got traded. But if it's somebody who's actually no longer here, because then it is literally like you were trying to live up to who they were. I didn't know anything about this going into it. I just took the link that I was sent and pressed play, which I'm growing more and more to love about film. If you know less and less about it and you just press play, whether it's buying your ticket or popping in a disc or pressing Netflix start, it's a really great way to embrace a film. And with a short, of course, there's like no stakes because at the worst, you're out eight minutes. This is a really beautiful film. So thank for, so first of all, Courtney, thank you for sending me this. I always like when animation can do different things. I, I still think that people have in their heads the idea that animation can only be what Pixar puts in front of them or DreamWorks puts in front of them or whatever that studio that, that lives and dies with minions uh, puts in front of them. Um, <laughs> but it, it can really do some powerful and emotional things in, in a lot of ways. And I mean, even just the color palette of this movie, of how it's all these blues and greens and grays, but every once in a while that little splash of red kicks in. It's such a gorgeous movie and really leaves a lot with you in just under seven minutes. What I was really impressed by with the animation, it looked like it was rotoscoped, something of a waking life, the Richard Linklater movie in the early aughts or early millennium, depending on how you decide to roll listener. I loved how the three directors, and I'll go ahead and uh, name drop them here, Nathan Otano, Remy Clark, and Lila Cotillon, how the three of them managed to blend in a bunch of styles, even though it looked just rotoscoped. My particular favorite was how they, they almost seemed to be like oils blending into each other, except when the main swimmer goes to take her lap or her round, or I don't really watch sports, so I'm just going to go ahead and go lap. But when she takes her lap and then the defined edges or those oily edges, they start jagging out. They're spiky. Almost a literal way of saying this is about to get sharp and real, folks. And I love how ambitious ambiguous the spirit of Camille is. She shows up to warn our swimmer, and the way it ends, I love how inconclusive it is, because our swimmer seems to have survived where Camille died. So is Camille disappointed that she wasn't able to accomplish what this swimmer could? Is Camille disappointed she wasn't able to reach out from beyond the grave and, and prevent the swimmer from achieving her greatest? There's just a certain bit of ambiguity in what Camille represents, even though it is so menacing, like the, the reflections of the water when it turns blood red, and Camille trying to drag the swimmer down were fantastic, but it raises a lot of questions as to exactly who Camille, as a spirit, what she's trying to accomplish here. Yeah, I found that ending to be really haunting, because one of the things I liked about this short is even from the early on, like you see the emotion and the grief from the rest of the teammates and the, how they, some of it 
is manifested in anger that the you know the new swimmer can't match Camille's time. Another one is just out of grief and tears. But when you get to the end, you think it should be somewhat triumphant. You know, she's kind of gone toe to toe with the spirit and has survived, has achieved what she wanted to. But you get that whole sense that, or at least I got the sense that Camille's always going to be haunting her. Every time she steps in the pool, Camille's going to be there, even though Camille gives that kind of sad look towards the end the look of terror on the swimmer's face as she's lying on the ground stuck with me it's uh, the one thing i do love like not to i I don't really know if you can have like a spoiler for a six minute film but i (laughs) i I do love the fact that when we get to the end of this film for the fact that she wins you would think that the team would be more excited and more joyed it's just this kind of muted reaction from them all yeah that's true made it feel like she didn't and I can't believe this is the movie that I thought of watching this short, but the team's reaction and then what's going through with the the replacement swimmer, it actually ended up reminding me of uh, Krzysztof Kieslowski's The Double Life of Veronique, where you have Veronica and then you have Veronique, and damn if I can remember which one's which, but um, <laughs> one of them early in the film, and this is more of a spoiler than spoiling a six-minute short, because as far as I'm concerned, if, if you need a spoiler warning for a six-minute short... You're doing it wrong. Point, <laughs> You're just lazy. So this one's more of a spoiler. There is this spiritual warning because one of the two dies because of the strain that she puts under herself from singing. And then her double, who she doesn't know exists, feels her passing, like feels her warning, and then decides not to follow singing. That's what I thought of a lot watching this, this spirit of competition. And then also this idea that sports records... I can't remember the article specifically I, I wish i could but we are actually reaching the human limit or what is at least for now the perceived human limit in a lot of sports and a lot of physical exertion the only place where records are being broken right now is marathon running and i thought that actually fit in really well with the swimming all things considered even the ghost is this idea that no matter how good you were there is someone who is going to be better or will be able to fill the shoes in some way. It's just, there's so many different directions you can pull this apart. I dug it quite a lot. We kind of tapped on this already, but the idea of a team dynamic. When you go into the professional team sports, there have been tons of teams that on paper should be, if not champions, then finalists or division winners that just completely implode because of ego or poor management or lack of cohesion. How there is that X factor of how a team picks each other up and how they get along in the locker room, which, you know, this team, this movie actually does have a set sequence in the locker room of how they're getting along that's a big part of the idea of when she replaced camille because it's not that just that she replaced camille in the pool it's that she's replaced camille on the team and what does that do to the overall attitude and chemistry of what they can do just because they are mentally at their best no that's actually a very good point i didn't even think about yeah, it in terms that's what of... happens when i'm in the guest spot yeah I don't, I don't get that kind of thing on my own show let me tell you <laughs> i was thinking more of like just her in the actual competition and stuff but just in terms of how she impacts the team dynamics i didn't even give that a thought so kudos to you sir thank you one thing i would like to say though if we can maybe do an awkward transition because i know we're talking about the team aspect but andrew you were talking about the spirit of competition and the human physical limits and i kind of want to jump into your short film standing because in the film that we just talked about there's a lot of i guess internal stuff that the swimmer is going through whereas in standing eight the trauma is physical in several ways so i just want to know like why you chose that one well first of all that may be the smoothest transition we've ever been able to pull off in terms of short (laughs) synergy because because as you were saying that i was like damn our shorts really work well together this week and they're great shorts in their own right as with many things been getting great use out of short of the week going there and seeing what i can find the style of standing eight caught me first off it has a lot of the same dreamy city as a lived in space aspects that we're going to get into with creed but there's also that central question of what is right in the name of sport because you're absolutely correct there's a considerable amount of information about the effects of boxing you know essentially getting punch drunk like unfortunately muhammad ali displayed a lot in his last few years even though he was still desperate to fight again 
I like how Standing 8 actually managed to make the exposition a lot less awkward by framing it around this boxer who is going to the doctor and getting himself checked out. So there is that aspect of the physical strain, what kind of effects that it has, and the lingering echoes of that physical trauma, which is something that a lot of sports fans like to conveniently forget about or sweep under the rug. To me, Standing 8 was a considerable step up from that Will Smith movie a couple years back, Concussion, which was about as overblown... I don't like the term Oscar bait. Instead, I like to insert self-conscious prestige flick. This is that without the pretension. One of the most effective aspects, especially in conveying his physical condition, was early on when he is with his doctor. He's told to close his eyes, and the second that his eyes close, we're back in that bustle of the fight and the fists and the body hitting the floor. If I had money to spend on music rights, this is where I do the let the bodies hit the floor, but that also might be in poor taste. In any event, it paints this excellent portrait of what we ask of our athletes, what strain we ask to put them through. Dying in the ring, it's relatively uncommon, but it happens. Even in something like professional wrestling, which is more sports entertainment versus, you know, an actual sport, there's still a considerable strain on their bodies. I know, unfortunately, Rey Mysterio Jr. was involved in a match that resulted in the death of a wrestler not too long ago. I like that it touched and didn't sugarcoat that physical aspect while launching us so completely into his perception of the events. It's really difficult, I find, to adequately capture post-traumatic stress on film that is something that i think we are learning more and more and more about with every passing year in all kinds of facets whether it's somebody has a car accident or somebody loses a family member or somebody has been through something incredibly traumatic rape and sexual assault it's really difficult to visually portray what people go through i have so little experience with anything like that so i I really want to put that forward that i'm not speaking from a very deep point of expertise but this movie i think really gets that close how it can flip back. Creed actually tries to do it, and I think Creed, uh, when we get there, we'll talk about it a little bit more, but Creed doesn't quite nail it as well as Standing 8 does, because a lot of times it's even just a glimmer. They talk about trigger warnings, and this is kind of the reason why, is because if you trip that trigger, you can really set somebody into a bad place very quickly, and Standing 8 illustrates that incredibly well. What I liked about it is that you get the struggle that he's going through, in terms of coming to terms with the fact that a person died in the ring and he might have been the cause of it. But also, I like the little nods it takes towards the fans. And because early on, he meets that guy on the street. They're talking about the the upcoming fight. Like, oh, yeah, you're going to kill him, right? You're going to kill him as, you know, the boisterous thing that most boxing fans would say. Here, it has a lot of added weight. And even when the reporter is trying to get the sensational story, it's like, well, this is what the fans want. You think about, especially with boxing, and I think of the McGregor-Mayweather fight, which I didn't see, but we had to endure the whole hype machine for, what, a month and a half. (laughs) You know, but it was all the extraneous stuff aside, like people were willing to put aside everything because they just wanted to see these two individuals beat the crap out of each other and who's going to beat who and what. And we we never really think of the consequences. We just want the good show. And I like that this guy has to deal with the consequences, especially in terms of the dead man's wife and child and his own health issues as well. So I, I was surprised how layered this short was. The funny thing, actually, though, Courtney, is that I feel like in our lifetime, we will see the end of some of these sports. Boxing is, a, as much as it seems like it, it's getting a tougher and tougher sell as years go on, just because the boxing stars aren't what they used to be, and it's not the entertainment draw the way it used to be. UFC has kind of taken over what boxing used to be. On top of this, of course, where contact sports are considered, there's, you also have to talk about professional football. Enrollment in youth professional football is way down as facts have started coming forward as to what you are actually putting your body through parents and children just don't want to endure that anymore so i do wonder if any of the three of us will live long enough to see the end of sports like boxing and ufc and professional football maybe i think that's a a very good point and honestly ryan to uh (sighs) um to your point i i didn't even really think about this from a ptsd perspective and now i'm 
struggling with it because I, I do have PTSD. I had a um, very long year when I was very young uh, where I was abused on a near daily basis. And oddly enough, the most triggering movie recently, and it is probably going to be my movie of the year just because of the, the emotional impact, was um, It, oddly enough. Oh, sure. Because um, there were parts of that where... Uh, I just closed my eyes and I was just crying with my eyes closed for about two, three minutes before I finally did my grounding exercises and got uh, back in the moment and was able to get through it. And I see that there's a risk that um, you run into depending on how you handle your PTSD. And that's why I'm, I'm trying to kind of go forward really carefully now because I, I completely see what you're talking about. But um, at the same time, one of the big issues, at least with my particular form of it is that uh, I grew incredibly codependent and started having to um, take care of people when they wouldn't take care of themselves and taking on their pain and so on and so forth. And now that, now that we're talking about it and I can see the, the PTSD aspect of it, like especially how he becomes obsessed with watching the fight again and again to see what happened and getting different perspectives of events that he actually lived through, like in that interview where they kind of spring that footage on him. Now that I've kind of got that, that PTSD aspect, first of all, I have to keep, I, 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 I guess for like an insider's perspective, I have to keep reminding myself, this is not your pain, this is not your pain, this is not your pain. So to do that, and a way of helping out with that, um, is actually by focusing on the ending. And I don't, I don't think I can consider that much of a happy ending anymore. I think that whatever he's doing at his opponent's wife's house, you know, because she is a widow now, no good can really come from it. There's, there's not going to be any kind of closure, or at least not the kind of closure that he's looking for. He needs the kind of closure that his doctor can provide. And I also love the little detail that he has a black doctor. One of the big problems that we have in professional sports and kind of healthcare in general is white doctors not treating the pain of any POC, not treating it seriously. And my favorite moment with her was when she just goes into the elevator to give him the string of numbers and says, okay, if you can do this, I'll sign you off. She's not intimidated by any of this. And I, no. I, I loved that not only was this movie conscious of the real problems that black people have getting their pain seriously addressed but that it went so far as to have a black doctor address those pains so um not where i was expecting this to go and now i'm getting kind of a headache so i'm gonna, pass. <laughs> I'm gonna my bad i'm gonna um, no it's, it's good observation know, good observation i, I yeah. mean when I think about it framed that way, I think of two things, and I don't know which I want to believe at the end of the day. I, I am an optimist, so I think I'll probably go with the second. On the one hand, I think to myself, this is a person who is in for a world of pain. Because on the one hand, he's fighting some very severe PTSD, but on the other hand, he is also going to be fighting some CTE. Like he, this is a guy who on paper could be doubly screwed or the other way to think about it is that the CTE was caught when he was relatively young and the PTSD, he has however much longer the rest of his life goes to work through and he has enough time on the clock. If this all happened to him 10 or 15 years later, I might have a different idea. But I want to believe the latter. I want to believe that because all of this happened to him before he turned 30, that there's enough time for him left on the clock to to work through this and work forward. I didn't take the ending as a happy ending. I felt that there was going to be a lot of awkward progress for both him and the wife, whether it's them working through the issues together or after this particular meeting at the house, they never speak to each other again and go on their separate way. But I, I assumed his boxing career would be done, but I thought his life would almost begin anew and he'd still be able to find a way to cope with everything that he's been dealing with. 
it's sort of ironic that this is a short because you could certainly turn this story into a feature, into a very long feature, actually. I was thinking that with this and with the other short, these are both rich in the yeah. short span of time and the dynamics that they're working with. And I mean, even just the strength of performances. So since the short directors do sometimes pop in and take us a listen, Michael Molina Menard, if you want to expand this, I will be there opening day. I'll probably <laughs> take some extra medication beforehand because of how effectively you can pay this stuff. But I would be there if you turn this to a full length because, my God, this is a good one. So we're going to take a moment to change some reels, and then we will be back with 2015's Creed, starring Michael B. Jordan and directed by Ryan Coogler. Welcome back, everyone, and we are now going to be charging forward with what's arguably our most high-profile movie to date. It may not fit underappreciated, and it may not fit overlooked, but it shared the top billing for my favorite movie of 2015, along with The Midnight Swim and Magic Mike XXL. You'll note that those are two other movies that we've also done episodes on, but today it is all about Creed. Or, another way of putting it, it's all about Apollo and learning to wrestle with his legacy being a member of the Creed family. It's directed by Ryan Coogler, who reteamed with Michael B. Jordan after Fruitvale Station, which was another fantastic movie, to tell a sort of spiritual sequel, direct sequel, reboot, and also make it its own thing of the Rocky franchise. One of the things I love about this is, even if you're not versed in the Rocky lore, it's just a solid boxing flick with a lot of insight through and through. And if you are versed in the Rocky lore, then you're probably as ticked off as I am that Stallone didn't win the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor. <laughs> that being said, Courtney, this was your pick to round out our sports month, so why'd you pick it? Well, first let me say, I'm actually not that upset that he didn't win. Uh, best Supporting Actor. So I'm going to start it that way and uh, poke the bear, if you will. But the reason I picked this film is partly selfish. I just really wanted to revisit this film, and I'd been thinking about it for several months and just never got the chance to. So when we were just talking about doing sports films, uh, I know this is not, as you said, underappreciated, and it's definitely not overlooked, but it's just a damn good film, and I would argue it's one of the better boxing films in the last 20 years, and the reason I think so is because the boxing scenes themselves are exciting and really well shot, especially how the camera moves, but for me, this is really a character study that just happens to have boxing in it, but I know coming off of, what, how many was it, like six or seven Rockies before this? Six. Uh, six, and to varying degrees of success, I know when they announced they were doing this, there was a lot of griping online and people saying, oh, it's going to be terrible. We don't need the sequel. But I think this film should be the template for all the, whether it's the Monster franchise, the Marvel franchise, whatever. If you want to take an existing property and find a way to take it a new direction, Creed, I think, is a, the perfect way to do it because this film feels like its own self-contained movie. They don't try to force themselves into the existing Rocky lore, but they find a way to incorporate that. With just a few scenes and a couple lines of dialogue, you get the history of all that you need to know about the other Rocky films that involve Apollo and what brings Adonis to this point. And it's, it really just feels like its own self-contained film, and it's just really damn good. So that's why I picked it for this week. So... This film has kind of quickly become one of my favorite movies of the decade so far. I would like there are a lot of movies that I would say are technically and objectively better. But this is a movie that if I happen to be flipping channels and it's on, I will easily lose 45 minutes to an hour watching sequences that I've watched over and over and over and over. And it's kind of funny, Courtney, because you mentioned that it only touches some bases of what's come before it. I'd actually kind of counter that. I'd say it actually really goes hard to echo a lot of what has come before it, but it does it in a curiously elegant way. Everything from 
lines, to the overall structure of the plot, to the way that its final fight shakes out is very evocative of the six movies that have come before it, and especially the first one. But it does it in a way that it makes it all feel really fresh. It's possible that it's just, for the first time in a long time, you have a top-tier filmmaker at the helm in Ryan Coogler, who I am a huge fan of, by the way. Freevale Station, if anybody out there is listening and has never seen it, is a film that'll rock your world and it is filmmaking at its best. And he brings such an amazing approach to Creed that on paper should just be fluff. It should have no technique applied. It should just completely be treading on Rocky Balboa franchise that it's far better of a movie than we really deserve. Well, you said two things there that bounce against my own film evaluating ethos. Okay. Because Hit me. when we start talking about objective qualities of film, we can get into technical specs, but you love what you love. And I love Creed with every bit of my soul. And, and then, Courtney, to kind of bring your points in with something Ryan had said, of the last two decades, I can think of maybe two boxing movies off the top of my head, and those were Play It to the Bone and Southpaw, neither of which I'm clamoring to see again, even... Oh, there's been tons. Like, yeah. There's been The Fighter. Well, there was that one Fist of Stone that came out and did nothing this year. Apparently. Uh, it's it's weird. All of a sudden, there's this resurgence of boxing movies, which is really weird considering that the sport is kind of in a lull. I didn't even think of The Fighter as a boxer movie, but yeah, that is totally a boxing movie. I just thought of it more as a okay, druggy redemption story. But in any event, I'm a little more with Courtney, but I see where both of you guys are coming from. You had said, Courtney, that if any franchise wants to find out a way of rebooting itself or updating itself or just introducing a new chapter or so on, the majority of the Rocky movies are good. The only one I couldn't really watch again today is Rocky V, because you had Rocky IV with its stupid awesome rocky single-handedly winning the cold war in the middle of soviet russia and of course you got the heart and the soul of the other ones creed it's one of those things that it rewards those people who are fans or who are deep studies of the previous movies like you had mentioned ryan especially uh, rocky one the way that the streets are treated with this mythic presence that becomes a, a character in and of itself and i love the date especially to the philly cheesesteak place because there is no way those folks are not authentic. They come off so happily and so just born and bred into this little hole-in-the-wall diner that I would kill to eat at. Probably wouldn't eat as much peppers <laughs> as this date does, but at the same time, it hits all these little notes of authenticity specific to Philadelphia, but in a different way. It reminds me of how, and this is a digression that'll make sense in the long run, about how when Brian Michael Bendis updated Spider-Man and uh, gave us Miles Morales, who I would argue at this point is way better than Peter Parker, he looked at it literally. He was like, okay, here's what the demographics of cities are like now. It's more likely that our hero, if he's going to be from some poor neighborhood in Brooklyn, is going to look like a half Puerto Rican, half black guy named Miles Morales. And then the story's got so much better from there. Creed takes a very similar approach. It doesn't lose any of the mythic qualities, that kind of ethereal stuff of the streets of just respecting where you were born and bred and so on. But it does it in a way that is more appropriate to Apollo, both as a character and him being a black man, looking at the streets completely differently, looking at the night spots completely differently. So it really understands that one of the big things we have here in the States is when everyone talks about working class, they tend to think about working class white folks, when really what Creed and what is, I think, one of the reasons it really sticks with so many people is despite slightly above standing average, because he doesn't look like he's happy working a cubicle job and Lord knows I wasn't, with the bits of yourself that you can carve out in these streets, you know, culminating in that beautiful bike shot. Again, very self-consciously recalling Rocky and his jog up the statues, but doing it in its own way. So this is a rewarding film for Rocky fans, but because it gets to the heart of the city so well, it works perfectly on its own, even if you don't know anything about Rocky. Yeah, and I think this is a film that I can recommend to pretty much anyone. It doesn't matter that. if you if you're a sports fan, if you love Rocky, you hate Rocky. It's like this is the film you see, and even the callbacks, like that scene where he's running down the street and he's being embraced by the community with the the bikes. But what I love about that as well is it's his moment. You see the ferocity in him, but 
they also take that moment to help build up the ailing Rocky to say that your legacy will still always be within Philadelphia. Just just the way how that whole scene is layered, the passing of the torch, but still acknowledging the ailing man up front. And it turns to the whole community cheering on Rocky opposed to cheering on Adonis. Little moments like that. And you, you talked about the date. I love what they did with Bianca. I wish that she was in it a, a little more, but how they crafted that character and made her interesting. Like she's just not like in Southpaw. Rachel McAdams was just kind of there. I know she's supposed to be like the loving wife, but to me, she felt more like the trophy wife, whereas Bianca feels like a a true character. She's there for him, but she's got her own life and she's not going to take much crap from Adonis. Like, you know, the the way how they craft the characters in this film really worked for me. And even how the community and the local gym, everyone wants to use Rocky for something because they know his name, even at this age, will still bring them clout and fame. Whereas Adonis is using him to battle some demons but there's a genuine bond and friendship that starts there and rocky knows exactly all the angles he knows when they're trying to set up a fixed fight if you will one of those that they know if we set up this fight with adonis we're easily going to win because this guy's a rookie he can't match us like rocky is attuned to everything but yet he still needs to figure out how to learn to adapt to adonis and there's a lot of that human connection that i think really works in this film that a lot of boxing films don't have another one that came out recently was chuck i don't know if you guys saw that with Liev shriver and it was all about the man who inspired rocky the real life rocky if you will and they try to make it an interesting character study but it doesn't quite work and then because that doesn't work the times where they focus on the boxing that doesn't work either because it's not as interesting whereas here all the elements just fall into place and i think that's why I don't want to see a sequel to Creed. I know they probably will make it one day, but I hope at least they keep the same creative folks involved because if you give me another one that's almost as good as this, I would be happy. It's kind of funny because when I sat down to rewatch it, my wife said, why in the world are you rewatching this movie? For a two-year-old movie, this is probably a movie that you could recite. I'm like, yeah, but I always notice different shit when I you know, rewatch something. And one of the things I did notice this time, and I don't know how it popped into my head, as, as the scenes with Bianca were playing out, One of the differences between Rocky, the 76 film, and Creed is the difference between Adrian and Bianca. Because Adrian, God love her, she's a wonderful girl. She brings out the best in Rocky. She kind of gives him a center and gives him something to strive towards being a better man. But there's not a lot to her. Whereas Bianca is far more complex and challenges her man, uh, uh, where, you know, where Adonis comes in, in a very, very different way and pushes him in a very different way, is coming at it with different baggage than Adrian is. And I think that the difference between those two women is what really elevates this movie into something different. On top of what you are already saying of what Philadelphia was in 1976 and what it is now and how that works with the two men. I guess to be a uh, Adrian stand for a moment, I didn't think I would be using Taylor Swift terminology, but uh, that's how far it's entered into our cultural discourse. But she's very much a product of the broken aspects of working class Philly, you know, circa 1970s. Still living with family, being abused, so on. Doesn't exactly make her the most deep character, but when we're talking about what the reality is then versus now for, in that case, Italian-Americans versus here, or it's African-Americans. And when we start taking Bianca into the equation, that is when I start noticing how gorgeously lit this movie is. Oh, yeah. I love the little detail. Again, just the city personality touches. But you have that initial scene of annoying Bianca when she's working on her music, and there is something so freaking honest about a city where you can just run into someone and see a completely different side of themselves than you do in a small town where everyone is in everyone's business or in a a tighter knit community like you could have like with the first Rocky movie. Okay, so we need to hold here for a second because you've actually just tapped on something. This (laughs) is the movie that was shot by Maurice Alberti. Yes. Who is one of the few female DPs, like prominent female DPs working. And it's really interesting to me that you've got a female eye capturing a very, very male movie and story. And I love how she lights it in a way that accentuates more what Bianca's going through versus Adonis. First of all, the kind of music that she's playing 
totally my shit. Um, <laughs> it, 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 I was a huge trip hop guy uh, back in the turn of the century and then into the, the early 90s, DJ Shadow, Portishead, Massive Attack. Um, I could go on, but basically the Bristol sound. And she's not reproducing that exactly, but it does have a very Morchiba-esque vibe to it. When you see her in the club, after you see that torn poster, and I love that, that she's been there long enough that the poster stays up, nothing gets stapled over it. She just is a fixture there. She's bathed in this gorgeous purple light. And Adonis is not lit that way initially. He's lit as part of the shadows. But when Bianca hits the chorus, they like share the purple together. It's so romantic. And then when they have their date in the Philly cheesesteak shop, you have the more naturalistic lighting and it kind of a bit more fluorescent when they're actually ordering their food. And then it seems like they go into an entirely different restaurant to eat because it's so focused on her perspective. And instead of the purples, it's like this deep red of them feeling each other out, now looking for this love connection where they were both annoyed with each other previously. To your point, aside from Maurice, the only other prominent female DP I can think of is Reed Murano. Kudos to her, you know, just picked up some awards for A Handmaid's Tale and also shot the hell of LCD sound system shut up and play the hits. It's really cool how it shifts and it also kind of anchors how healthy their relationship is that Adonis is concerned with her and her career to the point where when she stands up for herself later on, yeah, she's totally in the right. Adonis had no reason to freak out like he did. The visuals and the, the lighting and the colors, it plays such a huge factor in that. And I think one of the things that makes the romance work so well is Michael B. Jordan does a, a fantastic job in this role. Because if you think about it, a lot of it is him playing the conflicted young man trying to get out of this shadow, but also wanting to be part of the shadow. You see him like essentially shadow boxing against his father at the very beginning. So a lot of it's him being very much aggressive and rough when he needs to be. But the times with Bianca, he's almost just, you know, not just tender, but you feel like that's the way how he is normally when he's hanging out with his mom. You kind of get the real side of him, not just the, I've got to go to Mexico to prove myself. And there's a lot of various layers to his performance. And I don't think this film would have worked if he wasn't able to sell those scenes with Bianca, add a bit of humor, but also sensitivity with Rocky, and then have that just general aggression when he's in the ring. Like I love that scene early on when he's trying to get trained back in L.A. with uh, Little Duke. And Little Duke's like, I'm not training you. Your dad died in the ring. And he gets in and he gets very boisterous. He's like, I'll take on whoever. Knocks out the first dude. And when the second guy comes up, you could just see that look on his face. It was like, okay, I got to put the helmet on. <laughs> I opened up my mouth a little too big. I hope I don't die. That range of emotion and it just works. And I thought he did a phenomenal job. And I know he was great in Fruitville Station. And I think this was the one that a lot more people kind of start to take notice of him. It's crazy because for a film that around the time you get about halfway through it you can tell exactly where it's gonna go especially if you've seen any other rocky movie especially the first one you know where this story is going you know precisely where the story is going and yet you get into that amazingly crafted final fight and you are so caught up in it admittedly it doesn't entirely take much but this is one of the few films to make me cry probably the most macho film to make me cry at a moment where i should have known what was coming and the fact that, that that you can leave a trail of breadcrumbs like that and still get the audience so wrapped is just a sign of such amazing execution. They talked when this movie was being made um, and the promotion of it. They were talking about holding back on the classic Rocky music of going the distance, like his anthem into the track going the distance, which is the one that if you've ever been to an NBA basketball game, it's the one they usually play in the fourth quarter, especially if your team is behind. Um, and it starts <laughs> off, with, it starts off with chimes and it's really momentous and it's really, you know, like, okay, we're going to go do this now. And it comes in at the perfect moment and it lifts everybody. And it's, it's amazing. It should not work. This should be the most obvious story we've ever seen. And yet it captures everybody's emotions and lifts it. And that's just execution on the highest level for a film that doesn't really deserve it i still hesitate saying like doesn't really deserve it okay hold on a second we're talking about the sixth sequel 40 years in 
that is a rehash of its original and that nobody wanted. On paper, this movie seems absurd and probably should have died in development. So the fact that everybody came to it with as much care and effort that they did, I I tip my hat because I wouldn't have. I think of it more like kind of a Mad Max Fury Road situation, um, which was the same year and the same and the same thing. And it's one of those cases where we have this bad tendency. And I, I've been encountering this kind of conversation a lot regarding it, where if it's a genre film, because it's good, it then transcends its genre. And we don't have to talk about it as a genre film anymore. It's now this artistic thing. No, some of the best directors in existence got their start because of genre movies. You had Steven Spielberg with Duel for crying out loud, which was about as simplistic a potboiler as you could get, but he just directs the hell out of it. And it kind of goes back to Roger Ebert's old saying that it, it doesn't really matter what a movie is about, it's how it's about it. What you're kind of touching on here, I think, gets to the core of this talk about how this year was terrible, at the, the summer was terrible at the movies. And I believe... Part of the reason why that was and part of the reason why we're so caught off guard with movies like It and Mad Max Fury Road and Creed is because we don't expect the studios to try very hard. <laughs> no, seriously. When, no, they're, they're, completely when they're luring their audience in with a name, you know what I'm saying? Like Marvel really doesn't have to do anything in the way of marketing anymore. They just need to say, we're making a movie. We know you have your money. So when you get something where they actually put in some effort, a studio picture, a big tentpole studio picture where they actually put in some effort it's almost like that a on the report card that's a string of d's it's like you can do it if you want to you just choose not to not to get too off track here but marvel doesn't even really have to do anything creatively anymore either hi-o <laughs> but in any event courtney i think you're bringing this up with the two fights because there are basically four because there's the initial one in mexico mexico yeah um, there's when he's uh in la uh, there's his initial bout and then there's his final bout part of the reason the final bout ends up being so damn emotional is first of all there's a clear contrast in how the two of them are shot because the his first professional bout or whatever like you know when he's hollywood it is done in a single four and a half minute take which i can only imagine for a boxing movie was a nightmare to do the blocking for it just weaves in and out and this is where i really give klugler a lot of props he does not just focus on apollo as each opponent gets the upper hand the camera kind of shifts to and fro like an actual give and take of a boxing match and i really appreciate appreciated that in the his first professional fight the the four and a half minute one and then the last one is really complicated as invested as we are in donnie or however you want to put it we also get this look at conlon who is supposed to be this kind of toughest nails fighter who grew up poor and brings it up rightly so in their press conference when he said you know my father was a dock worker and your father was the heavyweight champion of the world there were opportunities afforded to adonis that we don't afford to anyone else and that's where i think that kugler's working class sensibilities are so keen because he's not wrong but it still does not change the history of oppression that adonis has had to face getting to this moment like having to go to mexico of all places in order to do what he knows that he's great at in his bones so when you get to that final fight he's down for the count he's down for the count what gets me every time is adonis's life is basically flashing before his eyes and it's the image of his father this roaring symbol of civil rights that brings him completely back to life he acknowledges his struggle that he's gone through himself but it's when he thinks about what his father went through and what people still shovel onto him because of his father that he comes soaring back and i bought it i was like this is gonna have a different ending this he's gonna win this one he doesn't but just that embrace of history and still creating a sympathetic antagonist, it all plays into how deeply Ryan Coogler understands like the working class myths instead of playing it off on just the myth of Rocky. It's the myth of how people can transcend their situation doing what they're good at, but also not ignoring how they're exploited in the meantime. 
when you were referencing those points, it also got me thinking to a point that you had made in your short about standing eight and how the medical staff for sports will often let athletes go through for the entertainment and show. He's got that whole weight of his father and everything he's been through uh, through that tremendous fight is going on and the point where his eyes can't even open. Most times you're like, you know what, just call the fight. You've already proven your worth. And they did the whole, how many fingers am I holding up? And you see, I don't know if it was the cut man or whoever was doing the taps on the back of the neck. To, I love to that f- moment so to, much. To feed him the information. And part of you is like, all right, I want to see you try and win this. You know, I think you can do it. But the answer is like, I don't want to see you die like your father. Even though, you know, the film's called Creed. It's all about him. He's most likely not going to die. But <laughs> you're still so caught up in it that, you, you know, you're, you're kind of torn at that moment. You want to see him become the man that he's meant to be. But at the same time, you're like, you don't want to see him follow the same path. Even though, as Ryan said, you know exactly how this film is going to play out, it still has you hooked. You're still like even watching it again. I was on the edge of my scene, like, "No, man, don't do it, don't do it." And it's like, "Oh wait, no, no, I need to see that other scene." So, all right, go up, go fight, go fight. You know that kind of push and pull as a viewer that you get taking in that moment. Just wonderful how little details like that help to add to the overall impact, especially emotionally. It's kind of crazy because the moment, like, we're we're kind of taking that final fight moment by moment and talk about like what gets us and the moment that gets me is actually after that the pure and simple line and i'm actually getting tingles even just thinking about the line when he says i have to prove that i'm not a mistake on the surface that is a really really blunt line to put into a movie but with everything this movie goes through with every emotional beat playing perfectly it hits it right on if that line doesn't land for you i'm sorry you don't have a soul and that's you know of course that's when the music kicks in that's when the final round kicks in that's right like that's after he's almost been knocked out and he almost wins this fight and it it really and truly proves what he's all about like this is a guy this is a character that very easily could have started coasting through life as a teenager treading on his father's name and the fact that he doesn't really tells us a lot about what adonis creed is all about he 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 could have had such an easy ticket the whole way it's got to be a complicated position to on the one hand want to honor and live up to your father but on the other hand not openly want to admit who you are and yet still prove that you weren't a mistake like that's that's a this is a really amazing script when i the more i think about it i'm going to keep bringing it back to this working class thing because we've got this problem here in the states i don't know if it's the case in canada it's probably the same everywhere but there's this myth of the failure of the black father there be a be it crime or violence or something the reason that black kids keep ending up in jail isn't because of our extremely racist system that managed to perpetuate slavery far beyond its actual expiration date into Jim Crow and the modern day prison to school system, but that would be its entirely own podcast. But it's, it is this idea again of addressing that his pride as an American and as his father's son, he wasn't something that was just made to be discarded. He was, he was loved. And that's where Felicia Rashad's performance hits some damn complicated notes. She has really no obligation to this kid. I love that how she hints that at the very beginning when she visits him in the the children's center with that other haunting shot of those kids in solitary. That just, it it really bothers me. Again, it goes to how well Kugler is able to see the oppression at work. When Felicia Rashad, uh, when she comes in and they start talking to each other and Little Adonis says, I haven't had good experiences with social workers. And just her impatience combined with a resigned, this is what I've committed myself to. No, I'm not a social worker. Just this perfect mix of responsibility and a little bit of annoyance, but also kind of humor that this kid, even though it's not directly her kid, has in some way already spurred the memory of her husband. Obviously, I want to talk about Sylvester Stallone's performance, too, but Felicia Rashad, she just knocks it out in, like, the six or seven minutes she actually has on screen. 
Yeah, I was trying to think when, especially towards the end, when he's talking to the announcer and he was saying, Mom, I love you, although I know you're mad at me. And they cut to her and she has that quick little moment of humor to defuse the tension. I was thinking for her brief time is so impactful because even when she's getting on him for quitting his job to do to pursue this fighting and you think, you know, of all that she's done for him so far and brought him to this point where he doesn't have to fight. She's gone out of her way to do everything to make sure that he doesn't have to follow the same path of his father and he could still have a wonderful life if not better she still understands that if he's going to go do his thing i can't stop him but she never gives up on him other films would have had it been like oh they don't talk and you might have to have that big reunion speech at the end where there's apologies and this one is just a simple she sits she watches the fight and she's there cheering him on regardless of whatever's happened in the past and i'd be interested to see if they bring her back for the next one or well, depending on whenever the next one occurs, if they write her out, because I think she would be an interesting character to explore a little further. I really want to see her back for the next one, because there's there's a lot of her influence on his life that you can see if you kind of read between the lines. Marianne Creed is a woman who, on the one hand, made her adopted son want for nothing. Like, you look at that house, you look at that car. You look at that job. This is a kid who has it all. And yet you listen to him speak and you watch the way he moves and the way he interacts with perfect strangers. I mean, think about the first time that he goes to meet Rocky, like not not the first night at the at the restaurant, but the first time he approaches him and he's got that delivery truck open. This is a kid who sees a job to do and just says, I'm going to start unloading this truck. Because I'm an able-bodied young man and I can. And that is completely the influence of Marianne Creed. So she is provided for him in a way that most kids will not get provided for, but yet still instilled in him a work ethic and just a way of conducting yourself as a man that he may not have otherwise got. And I think that's also a perfect segue to talk about Sylvester Stallone's performance here because as good as Mark Rylance was in Bridge of Spies, he, he was quite good. How many perfect little moments does Sylvester Stallone get in this? It isn't just Sylvester Stallone. I think that Coogler and Jordan, along with Stallone, they hit a diamond-encrusted plate of pure acting perfection because they work so damn well together. I love the tiny polite correction that Adonis gives Rocky when he's writing out basically sets for him to do, an exercise routine for him to do. It's not meant condescendingly. He's taking a genuine interest in this man who was such a huge part of his father's life and just saying, hey, it's not spelled that way, and that's it. it. It's one letter, and then it's done. But Sylvester Stallone's line readings, the very first time that they meet, when they do actually meet in the restaurant, not when they're unloading the food truck later, the perplexed look and respect that Sylvester Stallone projects with Rocky is amazing. At first, he's like, oh yeah, this kid's great. When Adonis properly identifies that photo was taken in like the third minute of the 10th round or something like that. And then how he turns that into perplexion almost immediately after Adonis asks him about a secret third fight and who won. There is no shortage of Sylvester Stallone owning every single bit of this character and it's exactly why we've actually got five out of six great rocky movies and then another great rocky performance in a movie that is not a rocky movie we could just pick little details again and again until the sun comes up i'll just add one more about how they're all terribly exhausted the night after their first fight <laughs> and rocky gingerly places the blanket on Adonis and Bianca before going upstairs. I love how tender Stallone is in that scene. We talked about time passing, and this is one of those things that a lot of people might not actually remember or realize, but at one point, Sylvester Stallone was one of the biggest movie stars in the world. He was on a level of Will Smith, Robert Downey Jr., and put together he was huge and a lot of time has passed and he is not the same kind of man he once was he's not the same sort of actor he once was i don't think that has been encapsulated in a movie nearly as well as it has with creed and this, this is not even including the fact that he spends a big chunk of this movie as a very sick person you can see that he's moving a lot slower he's speaking a lot slower and he's looking a 
lot differently at the people who he interacts with, namely Donnie. Donnie comes into his orbit and he looks at him with a curiosity. He looks at him with certainly a recognition when he mentions who he is. Like Courtney said earlier, he's a guy who could be exploited or could certainly even exploit himself, but is just kind of resigned himself to a modest house and a modest restaurant. And Stallone really plays that very, very well. It's not totally where he's at as an actor, because Lord knows I'm sure he's he has not missed a meal. But it certainly is a really, really interesting place to put this former action star late in life and sell it in an Oscar-worthy performance. Just doing a quick scan of his catalog of films, because I was trying to think of what was the other film where he displayed this much emotion and it's stop or my mom will shoot possibly i was thinking well even rocky balboa but i don't think he ever reached the levels here and i know rocky five he was trying to make that the really emotional one and that didn't work as well and like nope. he's been even up till what expendables three he's always kind of relied on the action side because that's what made him such a huge star but it's moments like in this film where you realize he's at that stage where he should be doing different films maybe even going back into comedy what have you but doing roles that are more for his age. I mean, and he tried with Copland, right? It just didn't take. I thought he was good in Copland. I just think Copland as a film has its problems. And I think it's kind of important to remember, Sylvester Stallone's got a lot of range, give or take a, a stop or my mom will shoot. But he does have a great comedic side. I think Oscar's really underappreciated. Depending on your taste, his rhinestone movie with Dolly Parton is either the worst thing ever or the best, worst, best thing ever. I, as a huge fan of Dolly, I enjoy the exuberance that Stallone throws himself into that role. Are we counting over the top as an intentional or unintentional comedy? As far as I'm concerned, if there is action and there happens to be comedy involved, then it's just an action comedy. <laughs> okay. So, so we've got a little of column A, column B. So, uh, so over the top is just a, it's a great action comedy. The uh, best arm wrestling movie ever made. <laughs> but it's also worth remembering that he wrote the screenplay for the original Rocky and he did not play a stereotypical fighter in that. Same thing with his role in First Blood, which if you want to see a series that gets really complicated with its colons, just go ahead and watch all the Rambo movies. <laughs> his role in that was another complex, could have been just a simple action movie that ended up turning into one of the astonishingly effective mainstream indictments of the Vietnam War that clouded itself in kind of an action movie package without it being so condescending. That's part of the reason why I was so disappointed when Stallone lost, because he has basically proven himself with this depth again and again and again, but he still gets related to just an action star. I won't say that he's exactly helped himself of the three Expendables movies. Only the second one is decent, and that's because it goes full-on dark 80s instead of like this cartoonish version of the 80s. But he's been such a reliable, steady presence in front of the camera, behind the camera, writing, that this was his last shot, and now it's gone. I don't know if it's his last shot. I think it's more him and the roles that he takes. Like, I think he's just made so much money, and I think he, he's kind of lived the persona of being Mr. Action that he's not willing to take the risk needed. Similar to, like, Will Smith. Will Smith needs to start embracing more villainous roles, right? But he's too committed to the image. Stallone's doing Escape Plan 2 and Escape Plan 3. And I don't know if you guys have seen the first Escape Plan. It doesn't <laughs> need two sequels. It's got its moments. It's not the worst thing on Earth, but you could be taking that time to do some other stuff or writing more roles for yourself because you have that clout to do it but you're still stuck in that era and i mean schwarzenegger is the same thing like i guess there's just some actors that have built an aura and they want to do everything they can to keep that aura alive even when the flame is flickering so maybe these creed films are going to be that outlet for him to show more range Seems like out of all of those late 80s, early 90s action stars, Jean-Claude Van Damme had a pretty good resurgence. Sylvester Stallone stuck around. Arnold Schwarzenegger stuck around. The only person who really hasn't, and I would argue he never should have been popular to begin with, was Steven Seagal, who is a puppy-killing bastard. So it's nice to see at least that all of these 80s, 90s action folks are sticking around and still capable of creating some great art in the meantime. I was just thinking about Mark for Death. I was like, oh, that's a good Seagal film. But anyway, that's on a side <laughs> note. <laughs> 
he's not a good actor whatsoever, but there's a certain charm to Mark for Death in terms of that it's so ridiculous that it's entertaining. That's for another That's another a whole episode. other show. <laughs> Well, I think that's a good stopping point, unless uh, you guys want to start going on digressions of Steven Seagal's career, but I can actually recommend a much better writer for that, Outlaw Vern, and I'd much rather talk about JCVD's Sudden Death, which is still the best impromptu action hero going into the goalie position ever. <laughs> oh, isn't that the one where they like crash a helicopter on the ice, but the ice doesn't break? Yep. <laughs> oh, that movie. <laughs> Great. I think that'll wrap up the Creed discussion for today. And Ryan, you being our guest, what's the final word on Creed? Final word is that this summer I actually happen to be in Philadelphia, and uh, anybody who goes to Philadelphia to visit uh, usually ends up in front of the art museum uh, in front of those rocky steps. I would like to uh, reveal that not nearly as many steps as it seems. It's actually a very easy run. So every time you see a cast member in a Rocky film struggling to get up those steps, it's all the movies just lying to your ass. If you want the full authentic experience, now in light of Creed, you're going to need to find someone with lymphoma to come with you. I think the comeback to that is you got to run up those steps after you've run from Rocky's neighborhood to the steps, which is a really long way to jog. Well, Ryan, thank you kindly for joining us. If folks want to reach you, where can they reach you and what should they look forward to from you? They should reach me at the matinee.ca, home for cinematic passion and perspective. The podcast, which I put out fortnightly, is the Matinee Cast. You can find that wherever uh, better podcasts are found. You can find me on Twitter, where I'm at matinee underscore CA. And I should also point out that if you happen to follow Mr. Small on any platform of social media and you see a rather splendid looking black and white photo of him looking intellectual and deeply engaged in conversation that there is my handiwork people and uh, i've never been prouder than to see him adopt a photo that i took as his image across social media i had to change it during tiff because i I had to give them a more recent photo it shall be back on the twitter account very soon (laughs) can do whatever you want man It's, it's yours to do with as you wish and by the way guys it has been my pleasure to be on here this has been a lot of fun so courtney how about you they can find me at on Twitter at smallmind or contact me on Twitter via the Changing Reels account at Changing Reels AC. And I'm trying to think that much is going on. There's a few recordings from our TIFF coverage on Frameline that I'll probably add to the show notes. But other than that, just kind of getting back to the real world. And for myself, you can find me Twitter-wise at Can't Stop Drew. I also monitor our Gmail account, changing.reels.ac at gmail.com. However you listen to this podcast, we would appreciate a rating, be it on SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, what have you. Either massage our egos or crush them. Either way, it helps us get the word out. If you want to help me with my editing and production work here, donating to my Patreon's a good start. And you can also listen to takes on Twin Peaks The Return and the video game Hellblade Senwa's Sacrifice. This has been an excellent conversation. And remember, folks, you can change the conversation on diversity one reel at a time. This has been a presentation of the Modern Superior Media Network. 